He could just fly over and then laser shoot his face off with his eyes. Be honest. You're just a tiny bit pleased. What with the verdict? With me. Back on the streets. Every fairy tale needs a good old-fashioned villain. You need me. Or you're nothing. Because we're just alike, you and I. Except you're boring. You're on the side of the angels. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Style Guide Podcast with your host, Dave Morris and Stephen Orr. How are you doing today, Dave? I am doing very well, Stephen. And yourself? I'm doing pretty good. I'm doing pretty good. I'm, I'm feeling evil today. Oh, I'm feeling pretty dark as well. Pretty, pretty uh, mysterious and, and villainous. Th- those are the adjectives we choose to uh, describe to uh, with arch enemies today. Yeah, arch enemies and villains. Just regular villains will be in there too. Well, I mean, you know, you can't talk about one without the other because how do you understand what an arch enemy is without understanding you're just basic run-of-the-mill villain? Exactly, and we'll probably end up talking about some heroes too because you can't really talk about a villain without discussing the hero that fights the villain, you know, so the protagonists as well as antagonists. Yeah, and we'll probably start talking about romantic comedies as well and sitcoms. <laughs> Knowing how we do. Yeah, we'll go. We'll probably discuss Cheers a lot more than we should. Um, and Fraser. yeah. Ah, Frasier. <laughs> Instant classic right there. Okay, let's not let's not get that far off track yet. Let's get started with some uh, discussion of villains and arch enemies. So we have to start with uh, with villains, I think, or the distinction between a villain and an arch enemy. Well, I mean, a villain that that one's pretty straightforward, right? It's uh, it's either the the person, character, or even organization group that that opposes our protagonist and hero. I'm glad you said protagonist there, because I was going to say, is a villain always the antagonist, or can the villain maybe be the protagonist of the story? Definitely, definitely. I mean, that's that's one of the things, and I I love how everything comes back to this. But the uh, the Star Wars prequels, right? Like we're we're following Anakin Skywalker for that, and he is uh, he is definitely a villain. Definitely a villain, but he is a protagonist. Exactly. So So right. when we use the word villain, we aren't necessarily talking about the antagonist all the time. We're talking about the, the evildoer. Yeah, the, the, the bad guy. The one who we may root for because they're they're likable and they're charismatic and they're fun to watch, but they are certainly the uh, evil character or the the, the one without the, the strong, good moral compass. Perfect. Yeah, it's like in the like uh, the novel and film uh, by the same name, Perfume. We follow a serial killer, and he is our anti- he is our protagonist that we are following the whole story through his perspective. But he is very clearly a villain because he is killing killing people and capturing their scent. Spoiler alert. That's very similar to uh, Dracula, dead and loving it. Oh yeah, very very similar. They're both these really dark, sad stories. <laughs> I have no idea why I thought of Mel Brooks after you mentioned Perfume. Well, it's a story where there's a villain that we follow as a protagonist. It made perfect sense. I saw the leap. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, a villain is an evildoer uh, that in most cases is the antagonist of the story. So let's, let's, let's just, you know, let's settle on that. Mostly they're the antagonist. They aren't always, but mostly, which is different than an arch enemy. Right, right. So what is an arch enemy then, Dave? I think uh, in order for a villain to transport itself from villain to arch enemy, there needs to be a very a much stronger connection with the hero. Firstly, the first thing there needs to be a stronger connection with the hero, where they are 
either like the same or two sides of the same thing uh, in order for them to fully enter into Arch Enemy. Like uh, in Spider-Man, for instance, I would say that uh, all of his villains that he fights, the one that would be his arch enemy would not be, what's his name, Tornado, the guy that makes like tornadoes. Okay. Is that his name? I can't remember his name. <laughs> There's a guy who can make tornadoes. I don't even remember somebody who makes tornadoes. I think he makes tornadoes or like makes the wind or no, dust. The guy turns to dust. You're talking about Sandman? Sandman. Yeah. Okay. Sandman. <laughs> he doesn't make tornadoes. So Sandman, the very first villain that Spider-Man faced in the first Spider-Man comic, he's not Spider-Man's arch villain is what you're saying. Yes. He's not the arch enemy. Uh, he is an enemy and a villain. But I would say his arch enemy would be Venom because Venom is so clearly a... Uh, a duplicate of Spider-Man and like has a stronger relationship. It almost came from Spider-Man. And so when Spider-Man and Venom fight, there's a much more uh, intimate emotional uh, conflict there than just Spider-Man beating up uh, the crocodile guy. Well, and I, I think you're, you're right to, to, to point to the relationship there between Spider-Man and Venom, but it gets, it gets tricky with Spider-Man, right? Because Spider-Man has, has such a broad rogues gallery and I think there are people who would argue that uh, the Green Goblin is is also could, could also be considered uh, Spider-Man's arch enemy because oh, not right. beca- because of the the powers or because of their uh, like with Venom it's a symbiotic relationship from the start but Green Goblin like there's that that close friendship that that starts it and then there are others who I think would argue that someone like Doc Ock actually ends up being his arch enemy. Because he is, you know, this brilliant scientist. He is in some ways what Peter could have become and, and yet at the same time took a different path and, and chose to, you know, take his grief about his wife and, and harness it more for evil than for good. So Spider-Man gets a bit trickier. But I Man, I chose the worst example to start with. I was like, I was like Spider-Man will be an easy example to start with. And nope. I just chose the worst one. <laughs> well, I mean, because, I mean, everyone probably has this first thought with Spider-Man, who Spider-Man's, you know, arch enemy is. But, you know, Spider-Man, for for a comic hero, has quite a bit of depth to his uh, villains. And I guess that speaks pretty well to the uh, to how well they made the villains for Spider-Man and that each of them is is a piece of Spider-Man or, or uh, has a strong relationship to Spider-Man, which is... It's fascinating. I was not. I was expecting it to be an easy one. I guess I, the easy one, the one I should have used then, would have been uh, Sherlock and Moriarty. Whereas Sherlock solves lots of crimes and defeats lots of villains throughout his his adventures, but Moriarty is clearly the the peer of Sherlock Holmes. And and that I would definitely agree with. Um, Moriarty is Sherlock's equal, if not actually better, depending on uh, certainly some takes of the character. Yeah, um, and more and more able than than we see with Sherlock. But that, but but still, in that same case, there is that relationship of uh, of like mutual respect almost with Sherlock and Moriarty, and sameness between the two of them. That's what makes him the arch enemy and not just a straight run of the mill villain. Well, and I think that that kind of what you're getting at is, in some cases, it's a romantic or or near romantic relationship. Between yeah. the the this what we're calling the arch enemy and the the hero of the story, I mean, you definitely see it in uh, new takes with Sherlock. Uh, we we see it with something like uh, the Borg Queen and both Jean Luc Picard and mm-hmm. Data, mm-hmm. or actually uh, the Joker and Batman as well, where it 
it transcends the oppositional relationship where one is a good guy and one is a bad guy. And it even the Joker will state, you know, at times how much Batman needs him in order to even be Batman. Yeah, and that and that's the they need each other to exist almost. Yeah, the the vil, the the villain being there makes the hero the hero, and that sort of relationship is where they start becoming arch enemies or arch villains. Exactly, exactly, and in a way, you know, this connects to our discussion of origin stories, right? Because the there are times where the arch villain is the uh, the enemy that ends up shaping the kind of hero that our protagonist is going to become. Well, yeah. I mean, if you look at uh, the most obvious example, or I guess popular, is Harry Potter and, and Voldemort. Sorry, he who must not be named. Uh, Harry Potter and Voldemort. Because Voldemort actually is, he creates Harry Potter by marking him as his equal, right? And that's what creates this arch-villainous relationship between the two of them, where they are literally connected, and he literally created him. It it ends up being, I mean, that's why in the Harry Potter series, we see Harry face off with Voldemort in in different phases, right? The first yeah. book is is the shade, and then the uh, the second book, the Chamber of Secrets, Secrets, we see the younger version of him before he was the the villain, and we continue to see his influence throughout the series. And each time Harry faces off against him, that that relationship is is reinforced. Mm-hmm. And so I think one of the things that we're getting at here is that it's very hard to suggest that someone is an arch enemy of a protagonist in a singular instance or a singular piece of media or film. Definitely. I think about uh, Christopher Nolan's Batman movies. Mm-hmm. And the Joker is generally considered to be Batman's arch enemy. I, I don't think many people would deny that. But in the Nolan verse, it's harder to say that because we only see the Joker in the one film and we, we only see that relationship really in one context. Yeah, I mean, I would say in the Nolan series that the archvillain is, uh, is, what's his name? The League of Shadows and Ra's al Ghul? Ra's al Ghul, yeah, because they meet at the beginning and he helps create him and then they fight at the end of the first movie and then in the third one his daughter comes back to avenge him, right? So like I think Ra's al Ghul and the, the sort of legacy of Ra's al Ghul is the, the real arch-villain of Batman. And I think you're right. That's exactly the case with what happens with the Nolan verse. And maybe it would have been different if Heath Ledger hadn't passed away. Maybe we would have seen the Joker continue in uh, the series. But as it stands with those films, uh, that version of Batman is too rooted in his relationship to Ra's al Ghul and the League of Shadows. I think for us to point to any other character or relationship, like Scarecrow, no, Joker, no, like they're, they're all second fiddle to the the primary relationship yeah and i i do think that multiple instances is uh is crucial as well as that emotional relationship where they need to kind of reflect each other in some way as well as being uh multiply you know face off against each other. like uh like marty and biff in back to the future or uh marty and the biff family because i think he faces off against Biff, Biff's great-grandfather, and Biff's grandson, I think, is who he faces off with, right? Yeah, right, and trying to trying to remember, the, but that, yeah, that's exactly the case, right? It's the, and I mean, Biff being the same character, essentially, in all three makes it more straightforward, but you're right, that 
Marty is shaped by that relationship even before really the movie starts, right? Like Marty's character is bullied by Biff before we get into the main story and you can see the way that he and his family are kind of under the thumb of uh, Biff's influence. Yeah, and so in a way, Biff being such a terrible person to his family is what helped kind of create Marty. Maybe not so obviously as other uh, origins of, of heroes, but uh, that hatred for Biff is and his love for his family is what kind of spawned his, like, you know, tripping him in the cafeteria and the milkshake shop, you know, and, like, protecting his family from this bully. Yeah, no, I, I, I think you're definitely right. Now, now what's interesting is that uh, do you recall uh, Unbreakable with Bruce Willis and Samuel L. Jackson? I do. It was one of the Shamalama Night, M. Night Shamalama movies that was not horrible. Yeah, it was the one where Bruce Willis wasn't dead the whole time. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So that film is a bit tricky in that it's meant to be kind of a meta superhero film and origin story, both commenting yeah. on it while also participating in it. But but Samuel Jackson's character, Mr. Glass, certainly comes across as the arch-villain to Unbreakable Bruce Willis. Even though they'd never met before. Well, yeah, and it's really only this, you know, hour and a half long movie, and it we don't have the same continued appearance and influence on the character. It's this one shot. Yeah, if I remember details from that movie, this is them slowly coming back into my brain. They definitely have that connection to each other, that emotional kind of thing where where one always breaks and the other never breaks. And so they have this kind of connection to each other. And Samuel L. Jackson's been obsessed with finding Bruce Willis's character, so that obsession is part of that relationship too. And then he set up the train crash, didn't he? I Yeah, 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 yeah. And so Samuel L. Jackson did start plotting these terrible things to happen to Bruce Willis to try to figure out if he was the one, you know? So like... He did. They did sort of face off multiple times throughout the movie, even though they didn't really face off until the end. Okay. Yeah, I, I can see what you're saying. So I guess you could kind of make that mul that that's where that's where the multiple face offs happen. But it yeah, it's not super clear. <laughs> well, and it's a little different when we have this kind of the homage satire style of uh, of the the movie, right? Where I mean, I think even Mr. Glass at some point explicitly says that he is Bruce Willis's arch enemy. Like it's yeah, like the meta. It's it's sort of a meta breakdown of villains and heroes, and so it's hard to place. Like same with like Seinfeld and Newman from the Seinfeld series, right? And hello, Newman. Hello, Jerry. Like that. They have like it's it's a comedy. Uh, exploration of an arch enemy right like where they've just decided that newman's going to be jerry's sort of you know nemesis and they just keep having him show up and they keep doing that face to each other but they're not really arch enemies in the same context like sherlock and moriarty are right no i mean i wouldn't say that seinfeld is defined by his relationship to newman yeah yeah definitely definitely i mean it, it and it and which isn't to say like that's a great relationship and it's a lot of fun and i that reoccurring motif and the way that it changes throughout the series actually ends up being quite interesting. But I don't, I don't think that um, it kind of fits into the same category of arch enemy that we're talking about. Definitely not. And it's a comic exploration of it. So, of course, it won't fit as well as, as uh, other examples of arch enemies and arch villains. So we have the, the, two, the main distinction so far between villains and arch enemies we've discussed. 
is uh, one, they need to uh, have a, a strong connection to each other where they either reflect each other or are the same as each other. The other thing you mentioned, too, is that there's almost a romantic relationship between the two of them where they kind of, quote unquote, love each other. And then the third one was is this idea that they need to have multiple instances of facing off against this person. Otherwise, they don't quite make it to that arch villain, arch enemy uh, place. That sound good so far? Yeah, I think I'm satisfied with all of those. I, th- I think so far. I'm, I'm trying to think if there's something else I would say that constitutes them being an arch enemy. Because uh, like, I'm thinking of other arch enemies like Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Th- does she even have an arch villain? And I don't think in the TV show she necessarily does because they kind of change it every season. In the film, the 1990s film version of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, mm-hmm. there is the Vampire Lord, whatever his name is. It's not Dracula, but it's you know the Vampire Lord in that movie. And Buffy and him do have a, uh, they are sort of the opposites of each other, right? They are incredibly powerful and one is a human and one is dead and one's a girl and one's a man and one is young and one is old, right? So they're the opposites of each other and they kind of reflect each other in that way. The relationship they have definitely has this weird sort of emotional romantic thing. I don't know if you remember the movie a lot, but every time they see each other, he says like this, this weird like romantic play that they kind of act out with each other and he like rubs a rose and he's supposed to kill her because she's the slayer and blah 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 and then they do face off multiple times because this same life cycle of slayer and vampire lord has been happening for generations like million like like thousands of years uh and he awakes and she is called and then they fight and then she dies and that's sort of the story they tell over and over again uh so i think that makes him her arch villain well, see, what's interesting about that is that I think that's an instance where the villain is defined by the hero, but is the hero as much defined in that same way? Because I think Buffy in in the film is is more is more defined by the experience of becoming a slayer and the 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 revelation of this secret world more broadly. Whereas the it's not the master. It's I think yeah, it's just a. I think he's just called the master. Well, I'm trying to remember if that's the television series or not. But regardless, he ends up being very much rooted in that relationship. But I don't know if it. I would say that it's the same for for that that version of Buffy. And and I think this is something that actually Joss Whedon kind of lampoons in the uh, um, the Buffy series, right? Like the constant references to the big bad. Yeah. Right. Like. Like it's always meant to kind of mock the idea of an arch villain for, for that Buffy character. She's more just defined by being a teenager in high school who's got you know this, this secret. Yeah, well, I think I would I would kind of disagree because I would say that they the the character of of the vampire slayer, the slayer, and him, the master. We'll just call him the master. I don't remember his real name in that movie. Uh, are definitely rooted in each other's lives. But then with the classic sort of Joss Whedon kind of twist to things, uh, she's the slayer that is different because she's a modern girl. And so she has her keen fashion sense. And that's what separates her from all the other slayers. And because of that difference between her and the villain, she wins in the end. Right. And I think that's how she wins is because she finally finds the difference between her and the arch villain. So I would say like that almost like makes it that they definitely were archer enemies, except she just wins at the end. 
by by destroying their relationship. Okay. Okay. You know what I'm saying? Does that make sense? It it does. I'm just I guess what I'm doing is I'm thinking a lot about the the Marvel cinematic universe mm-hmm. and the way that um, the Marvel origin story is is rooted in this very cookie cutter villain that they set up in almost all the movies where the villain is uh, has the same powers as the hero. They're just bad or evil. And you see yeah, that they're, like that's the literal reflection of the hero's powers. <laughs> like yeah. Iron Man, another guy in an iron suit. Captain America, another guy with the super serum. Yeah, Incredible Hulk, another gamma-exposed monster. And what they end up doing with that is, you know, it's a way of the showing the goodness of the hero and their, their I guess, heroic qualities. Although, now that I think of it, they don't, the villain doesn't shape the hero into that. They just show that in the hero. So maybe, maybe that's what keeps them from being... Uh, an arch enemy as opposed to the Buffy movie. You see what I'm getting at? That Buffy is not an arch enemy? No, no. Now I'm now I'm understanding. To, yeah, because yeah, in why. the Marvel Universe ones, they're very simplified villains. They aren't. Uh, but in all of them, all of them? No, not going to say all of them. In Iron Man specifically, it is like his father figure that turns on him. Right, and there is maybe a little bit more of an arch villain type thing there, but I still don't even think really. Yeah, and you wouldn't say that Tony Stark is defined by uh, Zachariah the, Zebediah. What's the uh, name? Uh, Obadiah. Obadiah. Yeah, Obadiah Stain. Uh, you you wouldn't say that he's defined by his villainous, right? By the villainous of his enemy. He really is more defined by the experiences that he has in the desert where he actually becomes Iron Man. Yeah, true. So it's more like the, the terrorists are his arch enemies. Yeah. Because he does face off with them multiple times throughout the film. Yeah, or it, it might not even be the case that, you know, there there is a, a strong arch enemy in uh, Iron Man's universe yet, in the cinematic take of it anyway. Yeah, definitely. The cinematic take. And it is a lot harder to come up with an arch enemy in a cinematic way because you're only really getting that one shot to fight them. So you kind of have to break it up throughout the movie and hope that that creates a a strong enough relationship between the two of them that they can become the the arch enemy of it. Like like, um, The Matrix and Neo. We would, I think, all agree that his arch enemy is uh, Agent Smith. Yes. Uh, after the first movie, I don't think you would refer to Smith as his arch enemy, right? After the first movie only, he was just a villain, and he just beats him, and that's the end of the movie. But as soon as the sequel kind of comes out, and now Agent Smith is sort of learned from Neo and started to become an even greater threat, now we're starting to see that, aha, uh-huh, he's come back for more, now he's... And he, he's they're, they're slowly starting to define each other and the differences between them are what make them each other. And like that and they have like when they meet, they don't just fight. They have like these long, thoughtful conversations uh, about viruses or whatever or what, what, what I don't remember what they talk about. The Matrix Reloaded was not a good move. And so their relationship has been taken to that next level. And that's that's definitely what we see in the in the evolution of the Matrix movies. And I think you're right to point out that in the first movie, Smith is just an antagonist. He's just yeah. the villain through which Neo must uh, overcome and become the uh, 
the Jesus character that he that he does in the universe. And it's not yeah. until the later films where we see that relationship develop into an interesting, nuanced, and arch uh, arch enemy uh, hero relationship. Yeah, and it definitely is like um, he's a great villain, first of all. <laughs> but uh, but in the first movie, he yeah, Neo kills him. He just dies. He dies at the end. It's great. Uh, and it's not till the second one that he comes back that it's like, uh oh, he didn't die. He made him stronger. And also in the first movie, he's like a villain of a bunch of people, right? Like, like Morpheus fights him and Trinity runs away from him, and like everyone's fighting uh, Agent Smith in the first movie. Whereas in the second movie, there's a whole other schwack of villains that they're fighting against, and Agent Smith is just against Neo. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, you're you're definitely right on that. That's who who Neo ends up almost entirely fighting against and then that's why the pinnacle pinnacle quote unquote of the uh the trilogy is his showdown in the rain with the thousands of of neos or smith is watching yeah yeah that series ended so weird hi let's not talk about it anymore let's move on to something that we haven't talked about that i'm sure a lot of people out there listening are wondering when are they going to talk about the two greatest villain friends ever can you guess what i'm thinking of uh, you're talking uh, Richard Castle and 3XK, the serial killer? <laughs> no. <laughs> no one no one who's listening to this podcast is wondering when we're going to talk about Castle and 3XK. Okay, so then we're talking about Ferris Bueller and Principal Rooney? No, although that's a good arch enemy relationship. <laughs> I'm talking about the best arch enemy in uh, the cinematic, maybe, uh, maybe cinema, no, maybe not cinema, definitely comic books. I'm talking about Professor X and Magneto. Of course, of course. <laughs> you knew that too, didn't I, you? Well, I mean, you know, I'm a smart guy. I mean, Ferris and, Pro- and Professor, what's his head? Uh, Professor. What's his, <laughs> Principal, what's his face? That's a pretty good one. Um, but Professor X and Magneto, because they are, to me, like some of, almost the, the perfect example of arch enemies. Because they have such a high respect for each other. And sometimes are friends. And well, they they do have a complicated relationship that they they have similar goals often and are are forced to work together towards the same ends, but they have very different ways of achieving those ends. Yeah, and therefore on the same way, on the same road, on, on this uh, on their way to the same goal, they end up standing in each other's way. Well, and and I think what makes their their relationship particularly more nuanced is the way that it's been built upon both in comics but particularly in the the cinematic versions of them where they started their relationship as friends and uh and found that they could not continue to uh to operate together for for whatever reason depending on which version uh, of the characters we're going with and that they had to oppose each other but there's still that strong mutual respect for uh, both their history together and their desire for an ultimate mutant happiness that's a terrible way to phrase it but no i like it mutant happiness that's a perfect way to phrase magneto's goal (laughs) not human death mutant happiness (laughs) Yeah, and the fact that they, uh, I just love that they call each other, like Magneto calls him Charles. Like, so just like, hey, Charles. Like, they, he loves him. He's his friend. He doesn't call him Professor Xavier uh, or the professor like most other people call him in the entire show. He's like one of the few people who call him Charles to show that they are intimate with each other. 
and they play chess together and they call each other they call each other old friend yeah you know and it's like got this sort of even though they're fighting and like how magneto would leave like at the you know end of the first class one where he gets shot in the back and he's laying on the ground he could kill them all right then he could kill charles right then but he doesn't because he loves him but he should kill him because charles is going to stand in his way well, and part of that, I mean, it is undeniably sold by the relationship by Ian McKellen and Patrick Stewart. Sorry, sirs Ian McKellen and Patrick Stewart. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you see that again, I mean, certainly in the comic books, but you also see it between James McAvoy and Fassbender in the prequel sequels uh, where they continue showing that same... Uh, care for each other even though they definitely have different desires and different outcomes that they're aimed towards yeah and they do the the sort of classic uh, xavier helps uh magneto learn to use his powers better so he helps make him stronger and helps define who he is and and all that sort of stuff even and then he ends up sort of turning on him i guess is one way to say it yeah and and necessarily right and it's another instance of that friendship that turns into the villain relationship like we see with spider-man and the green goblin mm -hmm. if he is his arch villain we'll have to figure that one out well yeah you know just another instance of, of friendship turning into foe ship yeah and i think that's where the whole like uh the comedic concept of monologuing like when a villain monologues comes out of this arch enemy relationship so you know like in the incredibles they make reference to it all the time he goes monologuing oh my goodness but like, uh, if like if you think of like Blofeld and James Bond, or, or any of the villains James Bond fights, but Blofeld I think is the more famous one, where they like you know have a conversation while he's letting him die instead of just shoot him in the head, which is obviously where I'm like just shoot him in the head, you'd be done with it. But instead, he has to explain his whole master plan, right? That whole idea, which is what you do when you have like kind of a a respect for the person, is you explain to them because they're the only person that truly understands how great your plan is. Because they're your arch enemy. And I'm thinking here of Castle and 3XK, which you so kindly brought up. <laughs> in that, at the very end of this, like, you know, multiple seasons of television, uh, hating and fighting each other and crossing paths and, and capt capturing each other and blah, blah, blah. When Castle and them, when Castle and him are facing off right at the end, and 3XK explains to him all these things about normal people and how they just don't get it and how they don't understand how easy it is to manipulate them. And then Castle reveals that he was manipulating him as well because he as a writer can get inside people's heads and they kind of, they're the only two people in the world that would understand what the other one has done. And so they have to tell them. Yeah. Which, I mean, you know, to bring up a somewhat ridiculous example, we see similarly with something like Austin Powers and, What's the villain? Doctor, Doctor Evil. Evil. Yeah, that. <laughs> Which is a a, a, a joke uh, of uh, James Bond and Blofeld, of course. Right, right. But you you see that same sort of uh, relationship adhered to pretty strongly in the Austin Powers films, mm -hmm. where you know they there is a relationship where they're both defined by each other, uh, and they're both they they both are able to kind of get into each other's mind in in an interesting and, uh, well, nuanced quote-unquote way for those films, but, you know, they're <laughs> in, in the realm of arch-villainry and arch-enemies, I think that that's uh, a great example as well. Yeah, and, like, 
I like that you called that a ridiculous example after I just referenced Castle, uh, which is a television show that very few people listening to this watch. Great show. But they all should. Great show. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and so there is like this uh, this idea that they, they respect each other so much that they, they can only relate to each other almost, right? Because the hunt has been on for so long between the two of them, like Sherlock and Moriarty, especially in the, the new BBC series. That season two opening where Moriarty is is uh, does those three great heists and stuff and or is it the closer? It's the the season two episode three, yeah, the finale of the third one, uh, the Reichenbeck Fall, I think it's called, where after Moriarty gets out of out of uh, jail and he gets released, not found not guilty, at Sherlock instantly hangs up the phone and puts on a pot of tea and starts playing the violin because he knows Moriarty's going to come over and they're going to have a chat. They're not going to fight. They're just going to chat. And Sherlock is the only one that can appreciate what Moriarty did and how great it was and how smart he is and how dumb, normal, boring, ordinary people are, et cetera, et cetera. They kind of, yeah, that idea that they have to do that because they can't talk to other people about it. Which which brings us to kind of a, an interesting or, or brings me to thinking about an interesting example of the television show Daredevil. And, yeah. And I think it's hard to deny that in that take of the character, Kingpin is Daredevil's arch enemy, right? Yeah. And there is re- respect is the wrong word, but uh uh the the character of Daredevil recognizes the sheer villainry of Kingpin very early on. But would you say that Kingpin has the same sort of um respect for what Daredevil is or or even an understanding of what Daredevil's doing or does he just see him as impeding the progress of his villainous plan oh i would definitely say he does uh and i think uh, the places i would point to examples of that are one they both have the same goal of trying to clean up hell's kitchen right so they are that kind of mirror of each other they're both trying to make the streets safer and a better place but kingpin's doing it in this ruthless way and daredevil's doing it in this protective kind of from the inside as opposed to the outside sort of way and the kingpin, uh, there's that moment where Daredevil's trapped in the building with the like the cop that got killed or something, and kingpin walkie-talkies to him, and they have this conversation, and the kingpin even says, "I, I, uh, I admire what you're doing." I think is, is how he says it, something like that. And he, and I respect you, but it seems as though this has to stop, or whatever he says. I don't remember the monologue. But I'm doing a pretty good impression. Yeah, your kingpin voice, spot on. I think I'm doing all right. Uh, so, like that that monologue right there is that example of that, like you know, villain monologuing to the hero because they understand each other. And I see, I know what you're trying to do, but you're not doing it right. Let me do it. Okay, yeah, I, I can see where you're coming from, and and yeah, I mean, I do definitely see them as kind of uh, opposites that reflect each other in ways like. That's why Kingpin's character is fixated on art, right? Uh, mm-hmm. He's fixated on something that Daredevil can't, can't possibly be, see, yeah. right? And so they're that in that way, their their differences reinforce uh, reinforce each other. But okay, I, I see where you're going at. Yeah, so I'd, I'd say they, that that they they do fulfill that emotional sort of respectful thing with each other. The one where I'm I, I'm at a loss when I was thinking about villains, is uh, is Dracula. Because I think you and I would say it's Van Helsing, the Professor Van Helsing who's hunting Dracula. Right. But 
in the novel, I mean, it's hard to say that that's truly like their arch villains, you know, like, I don't even know. I think they talk to each other in the novel. Like, like the, the novel is told in like a, that sort of epistolary kind of letter writing and documentation type way. But do they come face to face in the novel? Well, uh, I feel like Dracula, does Dracula kill Helsing in the, in the novel? Uh, I don't think so. I think he, I think he makes it to the end. Man, we should have, we should have reread Dracula before talking about it. Yeah, I think, I, I, I don't know if he actually, I don't think he actually kills Van Helsing. I was in a play where I played Van Helsing in a play. And so I'm basing a lot of my knowledge on Van Helsing off of the play because I hadn't read the book in a long time, but I haven't read the play recently. And I live to the end. Well, that's, I mean, there, that's from the uh, the mouth of babes. Yeah, and and it was uh, based on the book. So, <laughs> yeah, so I don't know who, 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 if Dracula even has an arch villain or an arch, arch uh, yeah, an arch enemy, an arch enemy. Because, uh, yeah. Because Van Helsing's just hunting vampires, period. And then they discover Dracula as sort of the the root of all this evil. Yeah, I mean, and the I think Dracula is a is a different kind of example. Um, I think it's in some ways it's harder to point to a strong relationship there because the the villain and our heroes so rarely interact with each other in that film mm-hmm. in that story yeah sorry in that story and so it's hard to i mean you can definitely have a villain who's in the shadows but i i think there needs to be more interaction with our protagonist in order for us to really be able to call them their arch enemy and so Yes, I would agree that Van Helsing and Dracula have uh, have attained this kind of mythical relationship in in uh, in popular culture where you pair them against each other. But I wouldn't say that they necessarily in in that book are are arch enemies or in any individual story that is ever told because they've been retold so many times that I don't think any of those really attain that arch enemy status. But in yeah the historical context, like looking at all the possible, all of the stories that have ever been told, it's always Van Helsing and it's always Dracula. I guess it's not always Van Helsing, even for that matter. Sometimes it's sometimes it's Simon Belmont from the Castlevania video game series. <laughs> sometimes it's Buffy. <laughs> sometimes it's Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Yeah. So yeah, I, I would say definitely not really arch villains or arch enemies. Which is, which I think would be different from something like the Angel television series where. Angel and Angel Investigations is definitely set up in that relationship with Wolfram and Hart, right? Yeah, and and it's definitely the organizations versus each other because the leads and the cast of each kind of changes throughout. Like Wolfram and Hart is not always played by the same people. No, no, which is which is why the last season of Angel ends up being so interesting, right? Because they they take that relationship and they they say, well, what would happen if we we blended them and and kept the same antagonism and and tried to make it a uh, an institutionalized story where our heroes are struggling from within the institution that they're trying to change. Yeah, which is very cool. I again and again I think about that last season of Angel and I I am so impressed with the that decision because I don't think we see that kind of bold choice very often in cinema or in television. Yeah, where it just like, uh, should we just keep doing what we've been doing? No, let's change it. 
and they changed it and they did that made that choice most of the time it's yeah let's keep doing what we're doing because it's working like uh castle is a great example of doing it the other way where the the way where they keep doing what they're doing instead of taking the opportunity to change it in the castle television series where when beckett gets fired from the force at the end of season four or something like that it's like oh i was so excited because i was like what a great opportunity to totally change this show and now make it like castle and beckett off on their own doing this like starting their own investigation company like being pis and stuff like that and it was so close to doing that and then she went back to the force and there was another another time where she got hired by like the, the, the what's the the some bigger organization like became like a government agent, and only lasted like three episodes and then went back to the force. And I was like, ah, oh, so close, so close. Well, and similarly with uh, Agents of Shield, right, where the premise of Agents of Shield is this small team of regular people in the Shield organization. Who are, and they're not superheroes, and they're just going to continue the mission of S.H.I.E.L.D. more broadly. And then in Captain America, uh, the Winter Soldier, S.H.I.E.L.D. is destroyed. Mm-hmm. And and there was that moment where you, where you wondered what the show was going to do. Yeah. And whether the show was going to take it in a radically different direction and, and really, really commit to the choice that was made in the, in the Marvel Universe. Mm-hmm. And instead, they're just rebuilding S.H.I.E.L.D. No. Boring. <laughs> well, and, and and that's the thing. Like that's the safe route. It's certainly it's certainly the easiest choice to make. Um, and when we're talking about you know millions of dollars, I can appreciate why writers and directors and and producers are making safe choices like that. But it can be so interesting when they choose not to do that. Yeah, like I think a show you and I both love that most of our listeners have never watched: uh, Deep Space Nine, Star Trek: Deep Space yes. Nine. Uh, and Benjamin Sisko and Gal Dukat of the, uh, you know, of the, um, uh, whatchamacallums, not Romulans, the uh, Kardashians. Kardashians. And how they both held the same office, they both had the same job, except Sisko's doing it in like a kind, fair way and trying to help the Bajorans. And Dukat did it and enslaved the Bajorans and kind of like it was an occupation versus like a, a rebuilding of their culture, blah, blah, blah. And then Dukat throughout the series ends up like becoming a Bajoran, first of all. And while uh, Cisco is the emissary to the prophets, these wormhole aliens, Dukat ends up becoming like the the sort of going along the path of trying to find those evil wormhole aliens that live in dark caves on Bajor. Yeah, the Paw Wraith. The Paw Wraith, thank you very much. And he goes out and becomes like the emissary to the Paw Wraith, while Cisco is like the emissary to the prophets. And they kind of start becoming more and more each other's opposite until finally they have to face off on a cliff. And I think he just throws, or does he just throw Dukat into the lava or does he knock him out and then the evil Paw Wraith kill him or something? I, yeah, I believe that's what yeah, happens. Yeah, so like. Because Cisco ends up making the good choice and then the, and then gets taken care of yeah, anyway. Yeah, Dukat's evil choice is destroyed him anyway. Uh, so like that show is like a, a perfect, um, the twist that they took with Dukat's character arc to make him go like he becomes a Bajoran. Like, that's crazy. Why did they do that? But doing that allowed the the, the sort of arch enemy, arch villain story to become even stronger. Yeah, yeah. And what what's what's interesting, right, is that Terok Nor, the original Deep Space Nine station, 
uh, Ducat was the same character as Cisco. They were both commanders of the station, mm-hmm. and and they were they were opposite in the way that they did it already. And so the show had already set him up as as Cisco's equal but opposite. Mm-hmm. And then they continued along that route as they both had parallel development of their characters throughout the the series and were able to play with it in such an interesting way. And I, I think one day you and I will talk more about Star Trek, but I think part of that comes from the riskiness with the Deep Space Nine premise in itself. Definitely. Taking Star Trek and saying, we're not going to explore strange new worlds. We're just going to hang out on a space station and do politics. And so they were already committed to to uh, kind of breaking the mold in their stories. And making it more relationship-based as opposed to exploration-based. Which is why, you know, Deep Space Nine, the, the primary uh, enemy for, uh, I would say, the overarching show ends up being the the Dominion and the Dominion War, right? Mm-hmm. Which is radically different than Star Trek The Next Generation, where the primary antagonist or, or arch enemy for the Enterprise crew and the Federation as a whole is the Borg. Yeah, because the Borg are flying around, exploring space the same way the Enterprise is, except the Borg are like assimilating people as opposed to greeting people. <laughs> to call that what the Enterprise does. Whereas Deep Space Nine is sort of the uh, the idea of like not just a space station, but the whole idea of Starfleet itself. Is that what it's called? Starfleet? Yeah. The yeah. The United Federation of Planets. Sort of just existing in the universe and trying to unite all of mankind. And the Dominion is that as well. They're just trying they're trying to unite all of the creatures in the universe, but they're doing it by kind of dominating them as opposed to, again, greeting them. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, that same sort of difficulty in that relationship even gets played out when you don't see them directly facing off against each other. Like the whole idea of the prime directive in the Star Trek universe is this do no harm. We're not going to assimilate cultures. We're not even going to try and influence other cultures if we if we can get away with not because we want other people to develop and evolve for themselves and have their own cultures explored. And so in the Star Trek uh, Next Generation series, every time we see them try and avoid influencing in ways that they uh, that are against the Prime Directive, it's reinforcing the relationship they have to the Borg without ever mentioning the Borg. Yeah, definitely. And so in that way, even the absence of the the enemy ends up reinforcing that relationship and Mm -hmm. and so i mean what what you think of star trek the next generation you know is is beside the point in that it shows really how you can build uh, an arch enemy relationship over a long period of time really carefully yeah yeah beautiful so uh speaking of star trek so much uh there's another star thing that we haven't talked about at all yet that i think is uh is called for, and that is Star Wars. Certainly. We've talked about the prequels, but those don't count, as we've established on other podcasts. But in the original Star Wars series, Darth Vader, Luke Skywalker, is that the archenemy relationship? Or is it Obi-Wan Kenobi and Darth Vader? Is that the archenemy relationship? Is it the Rebels and the uh, the Empire? Is that the archenemy relationship? 
Is it Luke and the Emperor? Luke and the Emperor? Is it Darth Vader and the Emperor? Who are the arch-villains? What is the arch-villain relationship in Star Wars? I mean, I, I, I think I have my theory. I want to know what yours is. Well, on the surface, it's, it's Luke and Vader. And by our other criteria, that, that seems to come up again and again, right? The, in the sense that, you know, Luke is Vader's son. They are definitely uh, bound to each other in that way. Vader clearly created Luke. Yeah, yeah, definitely played a part in that. They do have this romantic, almost seductive relationship where Vader's trying to seduce Luke to the dark side, and there is repeated instances of them interacting with each other. Yeah, and, and Luke actually is the only person in the universe after the first movie who can appropriately understand Darth Vader. And, and that's why in the third film we see the change from him being the the whiny young man to being the the son trying to save his father because he he knows what the experience of the force is like in a way that you know without without obi-wan and yoda in the universe anymore no one else can yeah um and so we see more conversation with them and we we see uh, a better understanding of what each other is going through Mm -hmm. and so I, I think that fits, but I feel more comfortable with it being Luke's struggle against the Emperor. Even when the Emperor isn't the the front and central character, as he isn't really in the first two movies, the Emperor's influence is, by the third movie, understood to have been there all along. And it's the Emperor that took his father from him, and so changed his father, and in doing so is what made Luke... Uh, an orphan mm-hmm. and and forced him to to live the life that he did lead that that made him pure of heart and the only person that could defeat the emperor yeah like very much like harry potter in in that sense so i would say it's luke and the emperor i think yeah i see that that is a very good argument uh uh i would almost take it one step even further though and say that it's luke against the dark side of the force yeah. If we're gonna if we're gonna take it a step away from Darth Vader, we might as well take it all the way to the source, which is why I think I would almost just stay on Vader. Because once we move to the Emperor, then we move to the dark side, just in general. Because that sort of is like Vader and the Emperor together represent the dark side of the force, and Luke is the light side of the force, and yada yada yada. So I would almost just keep it on Vader, personally, and change it. So that at the end, he doesn't, instead of killing Vader, he, and be, or, or becoming Vader, becoming the dark side, he brings him back and saves him and turns him back into his father. So I don't know. Mm, it's interesting. Yeah. And it, I mean, it's certainly tricky, right? Because the revelation at the end of the second movie, it, it makes us reevaluate the, what had happened prior in in the in the movie in the the first movie and the, the most of the second and and so it makes it trickier for us to really understand what's going on there yeah because i mean vader certainly he does have a respect for luke you know there's the he is a force user he's my son i know he's going to be uh, a strong jedi so he can be an even stronger uh, sith lord yeah and they understand each other and He'll come like he knows that he what what he's going to do. 
And uh, there's that great moment where Luke just sort of like gets caught and Vader meets him and they like take the elevator ride together and Vader looks at his lightsaber and stuff and and he's like, oh, your light, I see you built a new lightsaber. Pretty good, man. Like they kind of have this like back and forth. Like we are one in the same. I do, I do remember Vader saying pretty good, man. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's the line. Vader's like, nice saber, pretty good, man. Nice saber. <laughs> and he talks like that. He's not, yeah, it's a, it's a new version. It's a new remake that uh, George Lucas released. Um, so, yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I, I still think I would, I would lean towards just making it Luke and Vader because that is where the relationship is, even though I do see what you mean, that it is Vader is, is not Vader. You know, Vader, Darth Vader is Anakin Skywalker injected with the dark side of the force. And so when you take away the dark side of the force, he just becomes Anakin Skywalker again. So Vader really is the emperor's influence over him, which is that dark side. Yeah. And I I think the reason that I like that that version so much is that it's it's just like how at the at the end of the second movie, the revelation that Vader, spoiler alert, is Luke's father what um, that revelation forces a reevaluation of what came prior the the influence of the emperor that we we understand better in the third film forces i think this a similar reevaluation of everything that came prior again and so that's why i point to the emperor but i can see what you're saying with vader i would say cuz i would say if if that's the case then that uh the emperor isn't Luke's archvillain. The Emperor is Yoda's archvillain. Because uh, Yoda is sort of the good side of the Force and he becomes like the spirit and stuff. And and he's the one who's influencing Luke and keeping him on the right path and et cetera, et cetera. The same way uh, the Emperor is doing that with Vader. And so both of them are... are, are those two are archenemies uh, as well. Therefore, then their disciples are archenemies. They're Luke and, and Vader. Uh, are against each other that's what i would say what makes it tricky is that yoda dies and so luke ends up on his own with like yoda inside of him that sounded gross well and i think my my question in in that would would come from do we in the second movie really understand there to there to be any relationship between yoda and the emperor or is that only a result of the prequels uh it's definitely a result of the prequels. And that's what makes it tricky for me, right? Because but, because Yoda But also Sorry, go ahead. Can we say can we say that there's any relationship between Luke and the Emperor at all through any of those movies until the very last one? The Yoda character in in the second film I I struggle with that because it's clear that that he he's a fun character in the films. But he changes so much as a result of the prequels that I have a hard time envisioning the the character just in itself. And like I, I don't I I I can't I can't imagine a version of Yoda that doesn't have a direct conflict with the Emperor. Mm-hmm. And and so I I think I'd have to sit and rewatch the movies and ask myself what Yoda is doing in those those films and what his presence means cuz yeah i mean his presence is clearly the the uh the the sort of mentor to luke yeah. or the uh, you know the wise old mystic that helps him learn the powers of the force and i think that's super clear so i don't think there's a clear arch enemy relationship between 
Yoda and the Emperor. But what I'm saying is if we're going to say that Luke and the Emperor are arch-villains, even though they don't meet through the whole thing, then I think what really would be is that Yoda and the Emperor are the arch-villains uh, of, the, of the whole story. Uh, of, of each other, even. Not even of that story. Like, it never comes up in that story. Whereas Luke, his arch-villain in that story is clearly Vader. Because uh, he's the one that he has multiple interactions with, and he's the one that he uh, they have this mutual respect with each other, because Vader has this mutual respect for Luke. Being they are Jedi Knights, they aren't the Lords, they aren't the Emperors, they are the ones that are fighting the fight on the ground. You know, uh, they're not like Yoda who's off on some planet just meditating on the Force, and they're not the Emperor who's sitting pulling the strings and controlling everything. They're the two soldiers, and so they do definitely pair off with each other much more than Luke does with the Emperor. Well, and, and I guess the the best parallel that I can think to help understand this would be to return to Bond and say that MI6 and Spectre are the two agencies that are opposed to each other, but it's Bond and Blofeld that are that are arch enemies of each other in, in the way that you're talking about. Yeah, and, and Blofeld is only in... So many of the movies, right? Yeah. Uh, they're bringing them back for the Spectre one, I think. Um, spoiler alert. Uh, but I, I don't know for sure. But I think they're bringing them back for the uh, the new one because he is such a great archvillain of James Bond. But James Bond has so many more stories than Star Wars, so it's a lot yeah, a lot yeah. easier to, to find other villains within the Bond world. Well, okay. Here's, here's, a, here's the other way I'd say it then. Um, uh, I would go Inspector Gadget and Dr. Claw. Yeah, those two end up being even though Doctor Claw isn't in the field very often, they have the arch enemy relationship. Um, whereas Inspector Gadget's organization is, well, that's trickier, right? Because because in- they are against their evil organization too. What are they called? Even I don't even remember what Claw's organization is called. It might bad yeah. guys. They're called yeah. the bad guys. I can't remember. And but but so it I I think I see what you're getting at with the with the conflict being between Luke and Vader in that sense. I can I can make it mm-hmm. I can make it uh make sense. Yeah, like Neo and Agent Smith. It's not Neo versus the Matrix computers. Right? It is like Neo fights the Matrix period, like the 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 computers, but Agent Smith is his true arch villain. Yeah, and I, I, I mean, another example that, that fits into this is Optimus Prime and Megatron. They're both the leaders yeah. of their own uh, accompanying forces with the Autobots and the, um, the Maximals, or um, Maximals. No, the uh, Megatron is the leader of the Decepticons. S- sorry, I, I'm remembering uh, <laughs> Beast Wars. The, the... <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I'm glad you're remembering it. <laughs> well, because I was going to bring up the example of Rat Trap and the the Waspinator <laughs> as as an example of arch enemies within Beast Wars, while underneath the. <laughs> uh, okay, cool. Yeah, that's a good point, Steve. <laughs> let's, like, let's, let's delve right into children's television shows from the '90s. Let's start talking yeah, about um, reboot and uh, Bob the Guardian. <laughs> okay, so we are we are getting near the end here of this podcast. Clearly, your mind is going. Uh, <laughs> you're referencing Beast Wars, the animated Transformers movie from the 1990s. No, no, no. The, the, the television series, the excellent. It's very. You know what? I'm not going to defend it to you or to anyone. Uh, but there is like a so so one last sort of supervillain 
super like literal supervillain and superhero uh, arch enemies uh, that we haven't referenced at all is Superman and Lex Luthor. Yes. Which is, I think, an interesting superhero villain because they have com- very, very different uh, powers. Unlike other superhero and their bad guys where like, you know, um, Batman and the Joker, they're both just kind of like crazy people or um, Iron Man and whatever's obsid. Uh, 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 Obadiah Stane, they're just two guys that dress up in suits. Or Ant-Man and whoever the villain is, some other guy that dresses up like an ant. I I don't know. Another guy who can shrink. Uh, Where they are very similar to each other. Superman and Lex Luthor. Superman is incredibly strong and has lots of superpowers. And Lex Luthor has none of that. No, no. And, I mean, one of the things about that relationship, and it's gone through a bunch of different versions, but there are multiple versions where Lex, Lex Luthor is made the way he is because of uh, Superman's arrival to Earth. The the radiation, like there are some versions where the radiation, the Krypton radiation, is what makes Lex Luthor bald, which ends up being a defining characteristic for him as a young man and leads him to become this super capitalist. Nice. Now, I mean, or you look at something like the Smallville te- Smallville television series where they they end up facing off again and again as friends um, and then branch apart as their, their goals separate. And again, though, um, Lex Luthor is defined by his relationship to uh, Clark. And Clark, in a lot of ways, becomes defined by, you know, the, the cutthroat, uh, willing to do anything to achieve his goals, uh, capitalist mentality of Lex Luthor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I see. I see. We're going. I see. We're going. So. So it's actually kind of interesting because instead of the normal or the usual or what we'd expect, where the villain creates the hero, a la like uh, I don't know Tim Burton's Batman, where the Joker killed is the one who killed Batman's parents, right? Right, and that's what made Batman Batman. Or Darth Vader gave birth to Luke, <laughs> or yada yada. It's the other way around where the hero, just by existing, ended up creating his own villain. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like uh, Lex Luthor did nothing to Superman to make him super because he was already super. But Superman, by existing, pissed off Lex Luthor to the point that he became a villain and had it out for Superman. Right, right. And in in some some understandings that that original relationship is what prevents superman from just straightforwardly dealing with lex and in other versions you know lex becomes such a powerful and public figure that you know superman's powers are kind of meaningless against him in that superman's goodness can't uh can't allow him to simply just go take care of lex luthor and just rip his head off like he could right yeah, he could just fly over and then laser shoot his face off with his eyes because Superman's got so many powers he can do. He could turn back time, go crush him when he was a little baby. Um, but he doesn't do any of that because he's good. And so Lex Luthor can get away with it all. And uh, Superman has to stop him like with the law and get him busted and arrested and stuff. But Luthor's way too smart for that. Yeah, as we saw in Lois and Clark, The Adventures of Superman, the hit Dean Cain, Terry Hatcher television series from the 90s. Oh, Beautiful, beautiful show. show. Well before Desperate Housewives, back when uh, Terry was awesome. Back when Terry was awesome. <laughs> yeah. Which is why I, I'm 
I found the Man of Steel movie so interesting because they went with General Zod as the villain. So again, another instance where the villain has all mm. the same powers as the hero, but is just evil. Yeah. Um, but in by the end of that movie, Superman had to kill General Zod. He had to snap his neck in order to stop him from killing a family. Ugh. And a bunch of people uh, in the nerd world lost their minds because Superman never kills anyone is the... Is yeah. the rule, which makes about as much sense as Batman never kills anyone, right? Like Batman beats the crap out of people to the point where their bones are broken. They might as he, he they'd be better off. Well, dead. and maybe yeah. they are. Like he doesn't like it's not <laughs> like he gives them medical existence. Like he he breaks their bodies and leaves them there in the middle of the night. Like some yeah. of these people probably die, but <laughs> but so so the killing of General Zod in the Man of Steel movie, which a lot of people don't like anyway, ends up I think being a sort of defining moment for the character of Superman where he's going to realize that it's not enough for him to just beat the bad guy. He has to beat the bad guy in such a way that he never hurts anyone, that he never puts people in harm's way, and he never destroys property. And so I think the Zack Schneider take on Superman is going to to maybe move away from Lex Luthor as the arch enemy of Superman and uh, and have it have been General Zod in that defining way, anyway. Hmm. Well, that'll be neat. Or or I, not. I want to say I look forward to seeing how that happens, but I don't think I do look forward to watching any more Superman movies. <laughs> well, I mean, you. I mean, Batman versus Superman. I think is awesome. Ben Affleck. Well, I mean, I don't. Who cares? I don't. I, ben Affleck. Yep. Is in that yeah, movie? Okay. Yeah, but Batman and Superman <laughs> fighting each other isn't that cool? Doesn't your That'll doesn't your nerd cool. brain just want that? Yeah, kind of, kind of does. Cool, man. Well, hey, this has been this has been fun just dissecting arch villains and enemies and 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 uh, stuff like that. And I think we've come up with some pretty good ones and come up with some pretty good definitions as to what makes a villain into an arch enemy. Uh, I'm feeling pretty confident with that. Uh, do you have any final thoughts about uh, arch villains? Or arch, I should say arch enemies, because we're not just talking about arch villains. We're talking about the the relationship between the two. Do you have any uh, final thoughts on arch enemies? Ah, uh, I I think that I would point to uh, Principal Belding and Zach Morris from Saved by the Bell as a uh, good example of arch enemies that, uh, <laughs> nice. without being villains. <laughs> nice, that's awesome. How uh, about you? I forgot. About any that. last thoughts? Uh, you know, one thing I would say is is uh, to throw back to another a previous episode was uh, the Ender's Ender's Game thing, and uh, sorry, the Ender's Game thing, and um, Ender and the Hive Queen in the first book, sort of being enemies of each other, and yet being the same and understanding each other by the end, and that kind of is what becomes their beautiful friendship later in the rest of that series, as a, as a wonderful example of arch enemies who slowly become no longer enemies. Yeah. I just remembered that. We didn't even talk about Ender in here. Good, because we talked about him enough in the we, last We talked about him for two and a half hours. <laughs> I know. People loved it. If they didn't, they can go to the styleguide.ca and click the uh, send us an angry email link and uh, let us know uh, how much you hated that episode <laughs> or loved it, whatever you want. Um, so yeah, my final thoughts, I guess, on Arch Enemies is it's always been one of my favorite relationships in in uh, storytelling and in uh, theater, cinema, literature, everything. Uh, because of that uh, 
that beautiful emotional they the relationship where they need each other to exist that idea that one can't live without the other you know one can't live while the other survives and that they have this respect for each other and this love for each other even though at every turn they're trying to destroy each other and how when they finally do destroy each other which eventually they will do it's as as uh, as sad as it is uh, victorious where now they've lost the only other person that understood them. And I've always loved that, and I've always been fascinated with that, uh, that love-hate relationship between the two. I, I would agree. I think, I think that it's, it's fascinating. And, and my favorite part of those relationships are the moments we get where, uh, and it doesn't happen with all of them, as we've talked about, but where they're forced to work together towards a common end, and we get to see them in the relationship as opposed to in opposition and just those moments where where villain and hero get to be together towards a common goal that's that's almost always just fun to watch yeah and and i i really enjoy those moments in storytelling and i think that it adds such an interesting character to these characters yeah it's beautiful it's beautiful Thanks, Last Devo. It's been a great episode. It has. <laughs> did you I have did. fun? Did I you did have fun? have fun. I did have fun. Good. And nice. uh, I will see you this time next week. You bet you will. And uh, for the people at home, uh, go to thestarguide.ca, listen to episodes, share them with your friends, et cetera, et cetera, blah, blah, blah. And uh, thanks for listening.